One of the most uh, encouraging questions a pastor of a church family can be asked is this. How can I get involved? I want to contribute. I want to be part of things. I want something to do. How can I get involved? That sort of enthusiasm is very encouraging. Although, you know what? The encouragement can quickly turn to discouragement when it becomes clear that for the person asking the question, getting involved has a fairly narrow definition. I reckon that one of the best ways, um, the most useful ways, that people can get involved in, in uh, the life of a church family is in one-to-one ministries. Taking seriously, for example, the, the task of caring for others in the church family. Being committed to looking out for people on Sunday mornings over morning tea. Working hard at substantial conversations with people over morning tea. Meeting up with someone during the week to read the Bible and pray and catch up. Opening up your home for hospitality. um, Engaging with people in the church family at a deeper level than just the sort of high how's it going sort of level. I reckon they're fantastically valuable sorts of ministries. But when I suggest that to people who want to get more involved, it's often clear they had actually something else in mind when they asked playing guitar in the music team, organising something, leading something, something with a bit more prestige maybe, something with a bit more of a formal label, formal title. And I suspect when people hear my suggestion of getting involved in one-to-one sort of ministries, they hear it as a bit of a fob-off. It's actually a faulty view of ministry. It's a faulty view of belonging to a church family. And it's one that is addressed by God in his word to us this morning. So, great to have our Bibles still open at 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Our outline uh, there in the uh, bulletin should be helpful. And let's pray. James, can we try and get rid of that funny bit of noise? Because that's irritating me and I'm sure it's going to irritate everyone. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true and living and helpful, challenging and comforting. And Father, we pray that as we hear you this morning, that uh, you'd help us to respond rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, point one on your outline, and let me read from verse one of chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Over the uh, last few weeks, we've been looking together at this block of teaching, this unit of teaching in chapters 12, 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. And if you've been with us for uh, that uh, little journey, you might recognize that with that opening phrase in chapter 14, the apostle is actually picking up on where he left off at the end of chapter 12. If you glance back to the end of chapter 12 uh, with me, you'll see that uh, there at the end of chapter 12, Paul is clearly asserting that not everyone has the same gift in a church family. Not all are apostles, for example. Not all are prophets. Not all teach. Not all have gifts of healing. Not all speak in tongues. Not all interpret. Paul's really clear in that list. Not all have each gift. Not all have the same gift. There is great diversity within any church family. The Spirit gives to each one just as he determines. Now, the Corinthians, they were eager for spiritual gifts, but not just any gifts. They wanted the spectacular gifts. 
They wanted the gifts that delivered status and power. They wanted the gifts that sort of set you apart as what they would call spiritual. They wanted gifts that you could boast in. They wanted the great gifts. And so at the end of chapter 12, Paul really targets their eagerness eagerness for gifts. You want the greater gifts? Well, let's just make sure that you understand what true greatness is. And so as we saw from last time in chapter 13, Paul shows them, therefore, the most excellent way, the way of greatness, if you like, the way of love, the way of Christ. And having done that in chapter 13, now in our passage, having shown them the greatness of love, he now applies that teaching to the Corinthians' eagerness for gifts. He calls on each one of them to follow the way of love when it comes to spiritual gifts. And can I say, his reply is very simple. It's a very simple reply. It's really a very obvious reply, even. He really says nothing in our passage this morning that he hasn't already said in his letter so far. I know there's a bit of controversy and emotion and confusion within this chapter, but Paul's point is actually very, very simple. He actually sums it up for us in verse 12 of chapter 14. Have a look at it with me. Verse 12. So it is with you, the Apostle writes, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. What are the great gifts to be eagerly desired? Those that build up the church. In fact, four times in these 19 verses, the Apostle teaches the importance of building up the church. You might miss it because the word edify that the New Testament, that the NIV uses is actually the, precisely the same word as build up. And so you can see it in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 12, like I've just read, and in verse 17, build up, build up, build up, build up. The great gifts are the gifts that build up the church, that edify the church. And that's the way of love because love builds up. And that, of course, was resoundingly clear in chapter 13 last time, wasn't it? Love is not self-seeking. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love builds others up. So look, it's pretty obvious that when it comes to spiritual gifts, if you are eager to have spiritual gifts, love will mean that the gifts that you try and excel in will be those that serve the church family, those that build up the church. In other words, to follow the way of love will mean your focus will be less on the gifts and more on the brothers and sisters in your church family. To follow the way of love will mean that you seek to be a servant. And that is what this passage is all about. And it's important that we see straight up the clarity and the simplicity of what the Apostle says here. Paul's point repeatedly throughout these verses Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. That's what lies at the heart of the way of love. That's the principle, if you like. It's the verse 12 principle. But of course, in our passage, Paul does more than just state the principle. He helps the Corinthians to work out the principle in their own situation. In fact, what we find in our passage is that he sort of works out the principle in a sort of Corinthian case study. Okay, a Corinthian case study. And as we read over their shoulder, we get to use this Corinthian case study to then apply in our situation here in Morning Church. 
and hopefully you can see that reflected on the outline. We're going to look firstly at the way of love in Corinth and then the way of love in Morning Church. So let's firstly therefore look and see how Paul applies the way of love to the Corinthian situation. Verse 1 again of chapter 14. Point 2 on your outline. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Okay, for his Corinthian case study, the apostle chooses two gifts and puts them head to head. Prophecy in one corner, speaking in tongues in the other. Why those two gifts? He could have chosen any two, really. Why do you choose those? Because clearly of what was happening in the Corinthian church. Seems most likely that the gift of speaking in tongues had especially become the the mark of spirituality, of greatness. It had become the desired gift, but for all the wrong reasons. And so Paul compares it to prophecy and he uses love as the standard. The result of his comparison? Prophecy wins out. Prophecy, he says, is greater than speaking in tongues. Why? Well, it's there in verse 4, like I just read. Because prophecy builds up the church. Prophecy edifies the church, whereas the person who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. Love builds up the church, therefore prophecy is greater. Pretty straightforward, really. It's hard to avoid assuming that the apostle actually uses the word greater in our passage so as to engage with the Corinthians using their own terms. Like he does in much of the letter, he takes their words, their phrases, their slogans and almost turns them upside down. And it's almost like we can read the words great and greater in inverted commas. There's irony in the apostle's choice of words there. If it's greatness you want, he says, then you've chosen the wrong gift. You've chosen the gift that helps yourself. But that's not greatness, According to, according to love, greatness belongs to servanthood. And so prophecy is greater than tongues. That's Paul's verdict on this Corinthian case study. And it would have caused great problems for the, for the Corinthians. Great confusion, great consternation, great offence even. Great problems. But of course for us, Paul's case study raises some slightly different problems for us, doesn't it? We want to know what he means by prophecy. We want to know what he means by speaking in tongues. And for us, these verses raise all sorts of questions about the charismatic movement and and Pentecostalism. And if prophecy is greater than tongues, why don't we have prophecy in morning church? Or, Or do we? And of course, with those questions come emotions and personal involvement. They're really neutral questions. Some of us have very strong convictions about these issues. And some of those convictions are different and even opposite to each other. Some of us have been hurt by things to do with these issues. Churches divide over these things. There may be all sorts of thoughts and emotions and memories bouncing around in your mind and your heart, even as I speak to you now. They're genuine issues. And I need to address them now, I suspect, otherwise they're just going to keep on distracting us. But look, 
What we need to appreciate clearly is that all those things I've just mentioned, they are not the issues that the Apostle is addressing in our passage. They're not the issues that he's addressing. His aim in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians was not to sort out the differences between charismatic and non-charismatic Christians. His aim was not to write the definitive work on prophecy and tongues. Because if that was his aim, he did a hopeless job. Because he doesn't really tell us very much at all. In fact, it's very difficult to know with any level of certainty precisely what Paul even understood to be the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. I want us to chew on that just for a moment. Let's start with speaking in tongues. There is no way at all of knowing from 1 Corinthians precisely what Paul had in mind when he talks of the gift of speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, of course, with the coming of the Holy Spirit back then, we read of the apostles standing up in Jerusalem and speaking in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So writes Luke in Acts chapter 2. But those tongues there on the day of Pentecost were the languages, the international languages of the Jews that had gathered from all the nations. Luke tells us of Parthians and Medes and Arabs that all come together in Jerusalem. And they heard, they heard the apostles declaring the wonders of God in their own language, in their own tongue. There are two more examples of tongue speaking, uh, of, sorry, of people speaking in tongues, praising God in the book of Acts. And it always makes sense to read each of them as sort of smaller, later examples of what happened back in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, sort of mini Pentecosts. But is that what Paul means by speaking in tongues here in 1 Corinthians? Different human languages. Could be. A couple of times he talks about foreign languages in the chapter. But if it is then what we call the gift of speaking in tongues today in lots of churches is really different to that because speaking in tongues in churches today is not human languages, something different again. What are we to make of that? And our our difficulty is not helped by the fact that the gift of speaking in tongues is never mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. The lack of space given to it in the New Testament is probably a warning against granting it too much significance. But everything we can know from the Bible about the gift of speaking in tongues is contained within three passages in Acts and here in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And of course here, Paul didn't need to define or describe tongue speaking to the Corinthians. They knew what he was talking about. But we're left to wonder. Just to cloud things a little more, contemporary tongue speaking is not confined to Christians. Mormons speak in tongues. There is Hindu tongue speaking. It occurs in other religions and other settings. And yet, of course, we've quickly got to balance that with Paul's thankfulness here in our passage in verse 18 that he speaks in tongues more than all of the Corinthians. And one of the last things he says in chapter 14 is to not forbid speaking in tongues. Clearly, there are difficulties for us and we need to acknowledge that. And when it comes to prophecy, things are not much different. Once again... There is never ever any definition or description of what prophecy in the New Testament is all about. Paul comes closest in verse 3 of our passage, verse 3 where he describes the effects of prophecy, talks about it producing strengthening, encouragement and comfort, but that's the impact, that's the effect of prophecy. That doesn't really help us to know what precisely he means by prophecy. We get some examples of prophecy in the book of Acts, but it's quite varied. 
we know that New Testament prophets are of, a, are of a very different category to Old Testament prophets. When an Old Testament prophet spoke, like a Jeremiah or a Isaiah, it was the word of the Lord being proclaimed. You had to hear it and obey. But in the New Testament, prophecy in the New Testament has to be weighed carefully, tested. New Testament prophecy has much less authority than Old Testament prophecy. In some of the letters... Prophecy seems to be regarded as foundational and sort of tightly linked to the time of the apostles. Certainly in the pastoral letters, which are 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, and they sort of set things in order for the, for the life beyond the, the, uh, the apostles, prophecy is never mentioned. Prophecy is distinct from teaching. The apostle permits women to prophesy in church but not to teach. Back in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, prophecy seems closely related to praying there are pagan prophets referred to in the New Testament. There are false prophets referred to in the New Testament. If anything, prophecy seems to have this very broad meaning. Perhaps there are lots of speaking ministries that the apostle might include under the heading of prophecy. But there's no precision in the New Testament defining what prophecy is. Look, that's agreed by Bible-believing Christians, New Testament scholars, Pentecostal, charismatic, non-charismatic, you'll find they all agree there's a bit of a mystery about what prophecy precisely is. Here's the big question. Does any of that matter? Does any of it matter? Does it matter that we are unclear about the exact nature of either tongue speaking or prophecy? Does it matter? Well, clearly not. Clearly not. If it did matter then God would make it clear to us in his word. That would be our expectation. If it, if it was really an essential thing to know clearly, God would show us, he would teach us clearly in his word. The ambiguity and the mystery in the New Testament that actually prevents us from pinning down precisely what these things are, that's evidence enough, surely, that it doesn't matter. We can speculate, but that's all it will be. We can draw on our own experience, but we can never be certain because our experiences, what, what happens to us, must never be our final authority. That place must be reserved for the scriptures. And we've seen they offer no certainty on these things. Now, all of that is only a problem, of course, if our focus is on the gifts more than the purpose of the gifts. Let me say that one again. All of that is a problem only if our focus is on the gifts more than on the purpose of the gifts let me explain if my desire is to have the gift of prophecy then what prophecy is will obviously be really important to me because i'll need to know what it is to know whether or not i have it but if i'm content to leave the gift giving to god and just get on with serving if my desire and goal is to love my brothers and sisters and to build them up in whichever ways i can in which in whichever ways i have opportunity to then whether or not I have the gift of prophecy is irrelevant, really. What matters is what I do with whatever gifts the Spirit has chosen to give me. Whatever label I'm, that might be attached to my loving service it doesn't really matter. What matters is that I'm involved in loving service. It's the verse 12 principle again, really. Our eagerness should be directed towards building up the church, not towards the gifts. Serving the church should be our focus. And that's Paul's issue here. And everything that we need to know about 
the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy in order to understand what Paul really is on about, it's all here. So let's have a look again at those first few verses. What is it that distinguishes prophecy from speaking in tongues? Check out verse 2 with me. Verse 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. So Paul says, whatever precisely speaking in tongues might be, the key for the apostle here is that it is unintelligible to those who are listening. It doesn't make sense to those who hear. He makes the same point later in verse 9. We're going to jump around a bit in the passage. I hope that will work for you. He makes the same point later in verse 9, where he compares speaking in tongues to an instrument playing a tune in which none of the notes can be distinguished or a trumpet call that can't be heard clearly. Verse 9, So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. I would think we've all been in situations where there's been people around us speaking a different language. It's sort of, you enjoy hearing them speak, it's sort of interesting, but there's no way they can communicate meaningfully with us or us with them. We're a foreigner to to the speaker and they to us. And that's why, you see, when put head to head, prophecy rates higher than tongues because whatever else prophecy might entail, it is intelligible. It can be understood. And because it is able to be understood, it's therefore able to edify, to build up the person who hears. Like we saw earlier in verse 3 where Paul describes the the effect of prophecy. Remember verse 3? Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. It's the result of prophecy. It's the help to others that prophecy brings. That means it is greater than the tongues. Prophecy helps people keep trusting Jesus, keep obeying Jesus, keep waiting well for Jesus. Verse 5. Verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. The issue is very clear, isn't it? The issue is not tongues and prophecy. That's not the issue. The issue is edification. The issue is love. The issue is following the way of love. The issue is being more concerned with serving my brothers and sisters than with with what gift I may or may not have. And that's why interpretation of tongues changes things for the apostle. Because, it's not rocket science, interpretation makes tongues intelligible. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Why is that? Because our focus should be on serving those around us, building them up, edifying them, loving them. Check out Paul's resounding conclusion in verse 18 and 19. Let me read it. Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's a very forceful statement, isn't it? That must have had quite an impact on the Corinthian congregation, or it ought to have had. Because the apostle in those two verses undermines really the very source of their boasting and their so-called spiritual status. So each Corinthian wanted the spotlight on themselves. And the way they attracted the spotlight was to have the most spectacular gift, and especially speaking in tongues. 
But the apostle sort of wrenches the spotlight off them uh, and swings it onto the person, to the people around them. Swings it off the person who has the gift onto the people around the people who have the gift. Notice in verse 19, he specifies that he's speaking of in the church. Talking about when the church gathers. He's not speaking of the, about the individual exercise of the gift of speaking in tongues on your own, okay? He seems to encourage that in your private prayers. The apostle himself enjoyed that gift of the Spirit. But in the church, when the church gathers, the agenda is edification, building up, love. And our spirituality and the use of our spiritual gifts and abilities and workings and whatever should all be subordinated to that, to that end, to that agenda. Should all be constrained and confined by that purpose. That was the apostles' practice. Ought to have been the Corinthian practice. And it ought to be our practice. Five intelligible words that can be used to instruct another in my church family. They are to be preferred to 10,000 words that can't build up like that. That's why, for the Apostle Paul, uninterpreted tongues have no place in a church gathering because they offer nothing to the other believers. What about the benefit that speaking in tongues brings to me? Well, a church family is not about me. It's about us. And to follow the way of love means that my focus is on serving others and not serving myself, promoting the good of others and not promoting my own good. It's not on my gifts. It's on what I do with them. That's how it should have been in Corinth and how it should be here for us in morning church. Point three on your outline. Brothers and sisters, each one of us in morning church needs to put into practice the verse 12 principle. Our eagerness, we should be eager, and our eagerness should be directed towards building up the church In other words, we should be eager to love each other and to serve each other and to edify each other. For each one of us, our personal and prayerful goal ought to be the strengthening and the encouraging and the comforting of the others in this church family. And like the Corinthians, the use of our gifts and abilities must be channeled towards that purpose. And of course, we need to think beyond the case study of prophecy and tongues, don't we? need to think beyond that. So you may have in mind the sort of involvement you'd like to have within morning church. You're good at something and you'd like to do that. You enjoy something and so you'd like to do that. I'm not excluding those things, but the prior question, the more important question you've got to ask is, how can I build up my brothers and sisters? What's needed that I might help to strengthen my brothers and sisters? What's needed that I might encourage my brothers and sisters? What's needed that I might bring comfort to my brothers and sisters. It may be that what you have in mind is precisely what's needed, but it may not be. And it may be that you have to humbly tuck that particular gift or skill ability back in your suitcase for another time when it will be of help. It may be that what is needed is what, not what you would first choose to do. You might be giving up on, on that dream of playing drums in the music team and instead meeting up with that person who has trouble reading just to help them get a grasp of the Bible. might mean surrendering that hope of getting onto the committee management and instead deciding to open up your house to others to show love through hospitality. It might mean giving up on that dream of being asked to preach in church one day 
and instead recognizing that what I can best contribute to this church family is prayer. Quiet, out of the spotlight, committed prayer. Folks, we have a strange value system when it comes to ministry, I've got to say. We can't quite shake off the notion that the upfront stuff is more important than the behind the scenes stuff that the Bible college trained person is of more value than the untrained person, that the person who gets to deal with a hundred people at one time is doing something more valuable than the person who deals with one person at a time. That's sad because as far as God is concerned, all that stuff matters little compared to love. Love is the absolute necessity. Love is what remains. Love that builds up. Love that is committed to the good of that other person. Love that says, I am more concerned with serving you than what gift I may or may not have and what gift I may or may not have the opportunity of using. The very same love that led Jesus to not consider the greatness of equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Took the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. See, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if every single person in this church family was determined to love each other like that, to build each other up, to strengthen and encourage and comfort each other, to help each other love Jesus, to help each other trust Jesus, to help each other wait well for Jesus day by day. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If that was the goal of each one of us in this church family. God's word to you this morning. God's word to you as a member of the body of Christ that is morning church. Follow the way of Christ. Follow the way of love. Build up this church.